This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages, where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we are breaking into what is arguably the best chapter in this book. And I... I Fuck yeah, I it I is. I've, I think I've lost count of the number of times I've said that. But I think it, I think having reread this, and it is a short chapter, it won't be a short episode, but it is a short chapter, it was my favorite. How can it not be? It's got everything you want, man. It has got the battle. It's got anticipation. Patient. I see what you did there. Uh, it, it has it has battle. It's got robots. It's got explosions. I don't want to spoil the entire episode by hitting all the points, but let's just let's break into it. So, so Aaron, Aaron, walk us in. Take us into the beginning of this chapter. It starts off with the detonation and the brilliant flash of light from the antimatter friction bomb that Johnny Five decided to drop down on the mage that was holding onto the orb of Ozivox. Me, Johnny, you busted. And the shield goes down, which is pretty awesome. Means his plan worked. And it sounded kind of silly, but it made so much sense. But he says that for five seconds, nothing happened. Almost like everybody was like, holy shit, you know? And how many mm -hmm. times have you been in a situation in your life where something that you didn't expect was going to happen, happened, and then you just kind of sat there doing nothing. Right. Like, I thought that was really a great detail to the story, that you have a billion different avatars standing there, and they're all just like, oh, it went down. Well, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's kind of, you know, everybody's rammed up. It, it would be if you had, like, two guys that were itching to fight, and both guys had friends holding them back. You know, and they're just kind of like, they're just like going at each other, kind of like dogs on leashes. And it's all fucking talk. It's all until both owners just let go. And then it's kind of like, well, I was hoping you would hold me back so that there's that sort of moment of, well, I, I guess we should do that thing now. <laughs> it, it would almost be like you're, you're in a race at the Olympics and then the gun goes off and you just like stand there, not running. Right. Yeah. I was just surprised that because of that the it shock. went off to begin with. Yeah. The absolute shock. So anyway, so for five seconds, nothing happens. And then all hell breaks loose. Oh, yeah. It's like releasing the floodwaters of, of fighting lasers and pew pews and missiles and shit. Yeah. And as described, everybody is now involved in the new largest battle in the history of the Oasis. 
because the previous one had been no Frobaz. Oh, he had previously described the Battle of Frobaz as the largest battle in the history of the Oasis. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. True enough. Yeah, this is different though because everybody has come to the call. Yeah, to fight and or at least to watch because at this point we don't know. We don't know if people have brought their lawn chairs and they're kicking back with their virtual six pack of of whatever bud that you would drink in a virtual world. You know, how many of them just kicking back in the car, just kind of sitting, waiting for the end of this world to occur? Yeah. But but more importantly, though, and, and I just want to I want to mesh this with the movie. This is one of the chapters that I felt that the movie didn't do right. Yes. Or that I wish the movie had done better, because with this chapter, and I don't want to hit it in broad strokes, but more specifically, let's talk about the bomb exploding and this moment of anticipation that 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 silence across the the battlefield occurs right before everybody goes into absolute just insanity. We don't get that in the movie really. I mean, the shield does go down and everybody does charge, but it's it's very much like Star Wars where the guys sneak on and then they they sneak around to turn off the shield so that they mm. can escape from the Death Star. You remember that episode? Um, yeah, that, episode, that movie, or that part of the movie. Yeah, but that was episode four, right? Right, that episode, and uh, and that's what it felt like in the movie. But here, to have that explosion occur, to have that you know the robot kind of come dangling the what I imagine would be like a little lunchbox bomb that would then get dropped at the feet of this wizard that's been, you know, tirelessly standing at their post of keeping this giant fucking shield active. And then just the blinding white light of an atomic bomb going off behind him. To have that, awesome. I think the the similarities that you're talking about with the book, it's a plan that was set into motion and is basically on autopilot. And you're you're depending upon ones and zeros executing a plan that has every opportunity for failure. Whereas with Star Wars and with the movie Ready Player One, it was a person completely in control of their actions trying to get the shield down. I, I get what you're saying. This is a bit like a... It's a Rube Goldberg machine that, that may or may exactly not... exactly what I was going to say. Yes, I, I knew exactly that's where you're going. You know, when you watch those videos of these incredibly elaborate Rube Goldberg machines... You're always kind of wondering, well, like it could have failed right there and right there and right there. And and that's kind of why the Parzival's plan in the book was almost a little bit more nerve wracking because so many things had to work out exactly the way he had planned versus, right. and had he had no way of correcting it if it went wrong. Whereas when you have a person such as Obi-Wan Kenobi or Artemis there, they can then improvise. They can make adjustments to the plan, and figure out how to get it down. And I think the Rube Goldberg machine is a perfect example because you're right. When a person sets a motion into action and there are multiple things that have to happen, you kind of get disconnected from the person who put it into motion and lost in one thing doing the next thing, where the action exists in the moment. So I could see where it would be kind of confusing that uh, he goes and says, yeah, I programmed that thing to do that thing. Or really, it's she programmed to do that thing to do that thing. And then we cut to the robot. The robot turns on. The robot grabs the bomb. The robot delivers the bomb. And in the movie, if you didn't catch that moment where she said, yeah, I programmed that thing to do that thing, you'd be like, why is the robot doing that? 
and it's it's difficult to connect the actor, the implementer, with the actions occurring in the moment when you do a Rube Goldberg-esque sort of action domino effect, if you will. So I totally get that. Totally get that. I still would have liked it if if a bomb had been... I guess what I'm missing here is the giant bomb. Yeah. Because because when we talk about the largest battle in history, when we're talking about in the book is there's a guy standing out with the orb of Osiolox, and he's overlooking the battlefield, I imagine. I, I don't remember if it's in the castle or if he's on top of the castle or where the hell he is. But when that bomb goes off... That should kill a lot of people inside of that dome. The uh, antimatter friction bomb? Yeah. Maybe. It depends on what the range of it is. We don't quite get a sense of the range other than I think it says that it killed everybody on the platform. And we don't know exactly how big it is, but it seemed to not reach much further than that. Like, I I guess I would think of it as akin to what we hear about like these uh, roadside bombs that are in, you know, you hear about in war zones and shit like that. I, I get you, but it's, it says it's an antimatter friction bomb that explodes with a blinding bright flash of light. That to me screams atomic bomb in almost every word of that sentence. And I would think, I mean, it, this is, you know, dig into the details, but you know, it would have been, you know, all of a sudden that one person dies and then everyone else breaks loose. But I guess they got to have somebody to fight against, right? I'm going to stick with the idea that it is a little bit more of a localized explosion. <laughs> You're comparing an antimatter friction bomb to an IED. <laughs> it was a small stick of dynamite that we called an antimatter friction bomb. <laughs> All right, moving on. We're now in the largest battle in the history of the Oasis. And calmly said, within seconds, it becomes clear to Parzal that everybody there did not bring their lawn chairs. They came there ready to kick some ass. So let me ask you a question. If it had been you, and I mean, it's described here like several beehives and wasp nests that had been smashed together and then dropped into a giant anthill. I, I can't fucking like that description enough. This is classic Ernest Klein descriptions. Yeah. I, it's so great and because you can picture it. And you realize what kind of chaotic mess it was going to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's using insects again for his descriptions because he's done that before. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, because, you know, if you're pulling away, if you want to get a large scale of this, it's hard to do from a human perspective without actually having been pulled away. You know, to say it looks like cars on the road at 20,000 feet is hard to imagine. To say it looks like a billion ants trying to get into the same hole in one little anthill, that makes sense. You feel that you've been pulled back. You imagine something small, a lot of small things. And this is just great imagery. Great, great mind candy. It's super helpful to picture. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that, that those kinds of descriptions that Ernest Klein uses really helps form my mental image of the scene. Right. It is doing exactly what its point is. And it is super effective, which is why I know some people like to shit on the writing of it. But to me, if it's helping me picture what he was picturing when he was writing it, then it is absolutely 100% successful. If you've not figured out by this point that Ernest Klein is fantastic at comparing shit to shit you already know. Yeah. <laughs> that is his whole fucking writing style. <laughs> you know, he just he just happened to know the 80s and happened to compare it to everything in the 80s and then bring that shit in. But 
Yes, he's using what you know to paint a very vivid picture. And if it helps, just imagine that it's ants and beehives and wasps from the 80s. I wonder if that's part of like the screenwriter in him creating these kinds of descriptors so that way... A, like an actual director could imagine it like this, like you're describing a scene exactly. that you want created. And this is how far back you should be. And in comparison, this is what it should look like. Exactly. So maybe. Yeah, very well written. But uh, let me ask you a question. So at this point, all hell breaks loose. Everybody's charging forward. It is not just, you know, robot on robot just yet. It is tanks. It is, you know, you know hundreds of thousands of IOI employees. It's big and robots. potentially big fuck it is big fucking robots but it's everybody with everything that they can bring to this battle how would you approach this if you were in the oasis i mean like if i was there on the front lines with everybody what would i do yeah well well would you fight or w- or would you have come to this with your fold out chair well I-, I think we discussed before that i might have been one of the people sitting there with their lawn chairs but l- i let's say i would have succumbed to peer pressure because everybody mm-hmm. else decided to go fight Rushing towards certain death, by the way. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't know. You could just sort of sit back and snipe from a distance. You could just say, well, I'll just get in my vehicle and, and sort of buzz the area and try and put in some pot shots. Maybe I'll get lucky and finish off someone that somebody else already started. You but know what I mean? Let's say I don't want to be a dick. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Let's I, say you don't want to be a dick. So he, he says that people... It was obvious that people were rushing towards certain death and that as Sorrento moves forward, he's crushing several avatars, including some Sixers. And even Parzival was worried about all the avatars that were running over his feet to get to battle. Mm-hmm. So part of me would kind of wonder if, if you're there to fight, if it would make more sense, first of all, if you could fly to get up off the ground so that way you're not going to get crushed and mm-hmm. then kind of do like a, you know, dive bomb into the battle because it would really suck if you're like yeah fuck this i'm gonna go in there and kick some ass until i die to then get crushed before you get to do anything gotcha so i think i would try to strategize it by trying to avoid friendly fire death so you'd kind of do like a top gun buzz the tower moment sure you'd fly in close strafe the shit out of it cause a little noise i think i think the safest place from uh, as far as the battle is concerned is as high as possible because there's yeah. a lot of big avatars there's a lot of big fucking robots and you don't want to get crushed by them and then there's so many distractions on the ground plane that you might be able to actually be more effective from up, up high my concern about being up high is that there are potentially fewer people up high than there are on the ground and you're an easy on target on the ground yeah. And you are an easier target. The more the more noise you're making up high, the more of a target you become. Whereas if you are the multitude of people coming at you, it's kind of like looking at the horizon and trying to judge the number of trees behind the front line of a forest. Like everybody can throw shit over the front line, but that front line is really like the shield for everyone behind it. So for me, I would think that I would charge forward. I would lob rockets, lob missiles over the front line. I'm not sure I would want to be in the front line. I think it would leave that to people who are level 99 or or near about that area. Or perhaps have a robot. Or perhaps have a robot. I feel like that's an advantage. A little bit. But this is a huge battle. Yeah. 
I don't know, but my concern is just the avoidance of friendly fire death or friendly footfall death because it would be a shame to like be ready to go and just not have that opportunity to you know get your rocks off by lobbing a few shots at Sorrento. Yeah. Yeah, anybody who's running over the feet of something moving or under the feet of something moving, friendly or otherwise, dumb move. Yeah. Because you pretty much deserve to get smooshed, and that's unfortunate, but, you know, clear a fucking path or or die. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know. I I don't want to be the moron that grazes the the shield created by the Orb of Ozivox and doesn't get to fight it at at all. That would just suck. It's like the front line running in front of the tanks. The tanks are meant to go first. And flush the people out, followed by your infantry. If people go ahead of the tanks, just the the concussive blast of firing from a tank can basically, you know, fuck up the people in front of you just from a, an audio perspective. A few people that I know that have served in the infantry said they don't want to be in the tank because the tank isn't as graceful in its movements as, say, the infantry running behind it. I was watching a YouTube video must have been like a 1930s, 1940s video. It, it, you know, it's one of those military videos where it's like the tank commander's like, I'll tell you, I was in the tanks, and um, by golly, man, this is what you want to be able to do to find their weakness. I'll give away our secrets as a tank commander. We're blind in that tank. This is our, you know, ability to view. You know, our advantage is being able to move forward and and through, and, and anybody that pops up, we can kill them. But, you know, it was one of those, it was one of those weird sort of, 1930s, 1940s promotional videos for how to instruct troops to support tanks and what not to do should you come across a front line that has tanks. So yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, it's it's uh it was it you you may not want to be in it because it has advantages and it has some disadvantages. And same reason for being in a plane because the bigger you are, the more noise you make, the more attention you get. We come now to the point where I think one of my favorite lines in the entire book is said. And I know you know what it is. Is it on like Donkey Kong? Exactly. Oh, no. It's on like Red Dawn. On like Red Dawn. Wolverines! Hails yeah. Hails yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. For those who aren't familiar, that's a reference to the movie Red Dawn. Yep. The 1984 version. I think that's the right, right year. Right, right. Uh, have you seen that movie? I have seen that movie a couple times at least, and it is not not very well rated, like on IMDb or I don't even. Ooh, I haven't even thought about Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes, red. Because you already know how this is going to work out, right? We're, we're going to have to watch this movie, and we're going to have to t- toss it onto our Patreon channel. And I don't see because I'm looking here. I got 46 percent from the from, rev, from the reviewers and an audience score of 65 percent. Right. So out of out of five stars, we're talking two and a half. And by the way, for comparison's sake, the 2012 version of Red Dawn was 14 percent on the tomato meter and 51 percent oh. audience score. That means we're going to have to watch both. No, I've seen this. I've seen the remake. I'm not impressed. You're gonna have to watch it again, but. I, I don't know what to tell you. Love the original Red Dawn. Do you? It is awesome. Really? It gives you such a feeling of like, man, I want to kick some ass. It had a lot of great actors. It had Charlie Sheen. Well, <laughs> it had Charlie Sheen when he was a good actor. It had Jennifer Grey. It had Leah Thompson. It had Patrick Swayze, for God's sake. C. Thomas Howell. Yeah. Oh, who? 
C. Thomas the, Howell. Who the hell is C. Thomas Howell? Yeah, well, it did have him. Yeah. What the hell else is he in? Or did you just pull that name out of a fucking nah, hat? Uh, he's been in a bunch of things. I bet he has. Mr. Howell, I'm not picking at you, buddy. I just, I don't think I've appreciated your other works. Give me a second here. C. Thomas yeah, Howell. See, you don't know. You're just clicking on his name. Shut up. Actually, IMDb will tell me a little bit more quickly. Oh, he was oh, in he the was Amazing Spider-Man. He was from The Outsiders, and he was in E.T. He played Tyler. Who the fuck is Tyler? He was one of the friends. Oh, oh, okay, wow. Uh, let's see, what else has he been in? He's been in a lot of shit. He's a, he's been in a lot he's of shit. He's kind of a I'm glorified his... character actor. I guess. I, I mean, he's played a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff that's done really well. Like Red Dawn's oh, possibly he... one of the lowest rated things he's been in. He was in Soul Man. He was Mark Watson. Yeah. Uh, we talked about that movie. We did. Yes. So, okay. And that got 14%. Oh, wah, wah. What else has he been in? Uh, Gettysburg. Uh, anyhow. Anyhow. Moving on. So this was pre-Dirty Dancing, Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. Right, right, right. Leah Thompson, who we all know, is Marty McFly's mom. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. great great grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah. There was that sort of incestual moment in that one movie. Yeah. We, like that kinda it's kind of a thing. But anyway, awesome movie. I can't wait to watch it for the Patreon episode. And Really? Yeah. That's your memory? It was an awesome movie? Awesome movie. Okay. I I didn't have the it was on HBO on rerun in the eighties. So I I've seen all of that movie in parts. It, quite frankly, it was just so bland. Well, maybe I'll have no. a different appreciation for it as an adult. You know what? You're right. You know, I saw it as a kid, and I was like, meh, it's the only thing on, so uh, I guess I'll watch it. But maybe maybe I would appreciate it as an adult. Maybe I'd appreciate it now. Maybe, maybe it's potentially more relevant today than it was in the 80s. Maybe. We will get <laughs> to that point. But anyway, mm-hmm. so as we previously mentioned, we are now in the largest battle in the history of the Oasis— one might say it's pretty epic, and right. that's certainly what they were going for, both in the movie and the description of this battle in the book. So this is when the players bring their robots to bear. Exactly. So my question to you is, or really kind of anybody out there, mm-hmm. what are some of the other most epic battles in TV, movies, all that stuff? All right, well, let's, let's not talk about legendary, but we're talking epic. When we talk about epic, we're talking about scale. Sure. So when I think epic, I'm definitely thinking about, like, several beehives and a wasp net being smashed together and dropped on a giant anthill. That is an epic battle where everybody, all of the main characters, are in play in different parts working towards the same battle or the same goal. That, to me, is epic. So yeah. we're defining epic in that way. What did you come to as far as an epic fucking battle is concerned? I'm going to start off by saying I agree with you that as far as battles in the same scale as we're talking about in the book here, mm-hmm. some of the, the first couple of things that came to my mind were Lord of the Rings, the second movie. Right. That thing was the battle for Helm's Deep. Yes, that was an absolute glorious clusterfuck of blood, death, and orc. Yes, that yes. was one of those 
many, many, many beehives and many, many wasp nests smashed together over a big sea of anthills. Yes, just freaking huge. Yes. Huge, huge, huge. And and you had all of the elements in action, right? All of the actors were in action. Like you, you could move from one actor to another and you could see their story integrated into the larger battle. Like Gimli and Legolas competing for kills. That's just like part of the storyline, but it's integrated into this larger battle where they're just trying to do one-upmanship and it's funny and yet part of this much larger battle. Yeah, and the never-ending arrows. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of that. So the other battle that came to mind in the realm of scale was the mm-hmm. Battle of the Bastards from Game of Thrones. I've not seen Game of Thrones, Ugh. so I can't, I can't relate to that. But I'm sure everyone else listening has seen it and knows what you're talking about. That, that sounds um, epic. So speaking of Game of Thrones, would you have said that, uh, what, what was it, um, the Red Wedding? Yeah. Would that have been considered epic since there were a lot of main characters in that? That's one of those things that it depends on how you're defining epic, because mm-hmm. I could also see epic as in exactly what you're saying, the amount of main characters involved and just the kind of how emotionally attached you are to the players involved. Because uh-huh. in that point, like that one sticks with you like it watching that scene stuck with me for a long time. I think something can be epic and sort of legendary, or maybe a better term would be classic, like a classic example of something. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, I would consider the Kaiju versus Jaegers in Pacific Rim. I think that would be a classic battle. It is epic in the sense that it has large scope, but not epic in the sense that there are a lot of people involved. It's two big things or three or four big things fighting. That's epic in a different way of scale in that it's these big fucking robots Mm -hmm. compared to the size of people. And you have robots fighting these kaiju. Right. Like it's epic in that sense. But as far as the number of individual robots involved, I mean, like how many kaiju were there at one point? Not that many, right? Well, at the end, I think there was like three or four. Yeah, so like that's... But, and there was the underwater scene, right? Yeah. But I mean, when I'm thinking epic, I'm thinking large number of people at play and cross stories happening at the same time. And maybe that you could say that that occurred at the end of Pacific Rim. And I haven't seen the second one yet, so I don't know. Would you say that another way to interpret the epicness of something is the stakes involved? Like what what could be gained or lost? No. No, I don't think so. And the reason why is because you could have a person do something very small that could have a tremendous effect that I wouldn't consider to be epic in nature. I'll give you an example. Rogue One. Mm-hmm. So there are two battles happening. There's a battle happening on the surface of the planet to try and get the message delivered to the fleet that's just jumped in above. And then the fleet that jumped in above is having this epic battle. You know, hundreds and hundreds of ships huge destructive capability, explosions everywhere. And then you got the people on the ground that are fighting a much smaller and more focused fight. So if we're describing epic as in like gargantuous in nature, that you have to literally step back to understand and view it all, then you're talking about the space battle. But if you're talking about the most important part, then you're talking about those last moments where the message is finally transmitted. And it's that final battle at the top of the dish that transmits mm-hmm. that message. And that's only between a few people. 
That's not epic, but it is pivotal. That's an epic event, but that's that's not necessarily the. Would you call that part of the battle? Uh, that's exactly the point. Is is where's the epicness of that? I would say it's epic because the whole battle had to take place in order for that event to occur, on the ground and in the air. Yes, right. But if we look at the two two sides of that battle, as far as epicness, you could say the whole thing is epic, and that's fine. But I think the space battle was may, way more epic individually than the ground battle, even though what was happening on the ground was much more pivotal to the success of the effort. So I don't know that I would say that an epic is based on on the success of the effort. I mean, Helm's Deep, for example, what would happen if they had won? Well, shit, more orcs would get born and they'd have to fight again. Like winning that battle defending is kind of, eh, okay, they, they lost. Helm's Deep, right? In, in my mind, I was kind of like, you sure, defend it because it's yours. But if they lost it, it's just one amongst a number of cities that they would end up having to defend anyhow. And sure enough, in the following movies, that's what they ended up having to do. You know, it, losing or winning the capture of Helm's Deep was not what I would say pivotal to the movie. And maybe I'm missing something in the book that wasn't evident in the movie. Perhaps. It's been a while since I've read the books or watch the movie, so my memory... It's been a while since I've seen the movie as yeah. well. But I do remember just the epicness of like how large that battle was, which is what, in my mind, made it stick out as an epic battle. But a classic battle, though, like when we're talking about the Kaijus versus Jaeger, takes us back to, you know, the shows where you had the robot fighting the monster, right? And that's classic. That is a throwback to a one-on-one battle where the good guy is obviously different than the bad guy. There is no gray ground, and it's just a, like a glorified giant boxing match that involves robots and monsters, the shit that you just want to see. Fuck yeah. And in that sense, in my mind, it's classic. So, but, so how does the Independence Day, the original movie, how does that scale on your... How does that rate on your scale of... Epic versus classic, because this is actually a worldwide battle. It's epic, without, without question. Okay. Because all of the actors, all of the characters that you care about that are pivotal are enacting in the same direction in this giant battle. I mean, you can break it into moments, like when... What is his name? Which guy? The Fly. Oh, Jeff Goldblum. Help me out here. Yeah. With Jeff Goldblum... And Will Smith are in the spaceship, and they're delivering the atomic bomb to the mothership, right? That's less epic in itself than it is uh, intensely focused on something pivotal. Whereas the ground battle was epic and pivotal because they realized that delivering a bomb up the center of that laser beam fucks his shit up. Yeah. And that's when they radioed out, hey, this tactic works. Yeah, but they needed them to be somewhat successful up in the spaceship because that had to bring the shields down. I don't think they had to bring the shields down to send a person up the middle of the the, uh, the spaceship. We don't know. They didn't. Well, it, it wasn't the bringing of the shields down that was it. They would, did they turn the shields off? Was that the gist? They did the virus to turn off the shields. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, that infected everything. All right, yes, that was pivotal. That had to happen. It's funny how that movie mimics. I shouldn't say that movie mimics. I should say that Rogue One mimics Independence Day. Well, almost the well, same. Well, think about it. So does Ready Player One does too, because it's not necessarily the, the delivery of a virus to, to turn down the shield. It's the delivery of a bomb to turn off a shield, and then you can actually fight your battle. 
It's the same. Wow. It's the same. We thing. are identifying a trope. Is what we, it's, it's a trope. It's a it's a commonly used thing. Yeah, you yeah. know who knew? There's you know big baddie has shield. Good guy must sneak in to deliver a way to disarm shield. On disarming shield, giant army then goes in and pounds the fuck out of the bad guy. We just described three movies that do exactly that. Yeah, and there are. I'm looking on TV tropes right now, and yeah, there's a plenty of shield tropes. There's the well, that's sad. Luckily, my shield will protect me trope. There's the shields are useless trope. There's the literal disarming trope. Human shield trope. Deflector shields trope. Disarm, disassemble, destroy trope. That's the one. But I think this is a bigger pattern. Not just the disarm, dis- disable, but it's, it's a large sequence of events. You know, it, it's not just disarming it. It's that somebody had to sneak in to disarm it, and then that allows the larger force to come forward, thus focusing on a small effort being pivotal to the larger effort. Do you have a trope there that, that goes over that by chance? I'm actually, I'm looking at the list of tropes in, in Independence Day to try to find which shield trope they use. America saves the day trope. That's good. Anal probing trope. Oh. Hmm. I know it was just a dream. I know I didn't have an anal probe. And I know that I am not under alien control. There are a lot of fucking tropes. All I got to say is that when you start digging deep into tvtropes.org. How deep? Oh my God. Like, waist deep. Anal probe deep. Wow. Okay, go on. Yes. I mean, it's practically a trope for every sentence ever uttered in that movie. Which movie? Independence Day. I mean, really, anything. Yeah. Well, it's again, it's the alien crossover, but that somehow aliens from another planet, animals, let's call it, let's call it what it is. Animals from another planet want to come over and explore our butts. Yeah. That's, that is really how that translates. I'm not sure how we got Speaking here. Speaking about butts. To tell. What other epic battles can you come up with? Please fucking bridge us away from this. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably cut out all the anal probing. No, no, that's, that's, that's good content right there. Uh, we can expand this to either epic or classic or just the ones that are just the gut-wrenching battles in movies, television, video games, whatever you want. One of my favorite epic battles, not just for being epic in itself, but because it's probably one of the best uses of 3D animation in cinema, is the battle for Pandora in the movie Avatar. And I don't mean Avatar the fucking airbender. I meant like the James Cameron Avatar yeah, film. King of the World air, uh, Avatar. The, the giant, the, the giant uh, Smurfs. The ones that tail fuck. The ones that tail fuck, exactly. I, you know what? I... That that entire movie was just absolutely beautiful. Now, if you walked away going way too much nature politics, I, there's a lot of ways to sort of pick at this film because you expect Alien to be Alien. And when you see crossover references, for example, all the bad guys in Star Wars speak with British accents. <laughs> you go, why do they all have British accents? How did the, the British get into space to become bad guys? Why are they always compared to Empire? Oh, no, I know the answer to that one. Well, to see, uh, anyhow, that was pre-Brexit. <laughs> that was pre-Brexit. <laughs> yeah, when they were like, fuck it, we don't want any more empires. We're breaking away from everyone. You get it. If you can break away, if you can step aside and just look at the epicness of that battle with the missiles flying out, it just, it was just beautiful. Like the battle itself was phenomenal. It's been a few years since I've watched, but I do remember being very taken by the visuals of that movie. Everything size-wise was huge. So the ships that they come in with, 
to do the battle, Gargantuous, the giant mining ship that they move in, huge. The mechs that are stomping through the forest that the guys are in and fighting with, huge. The trees. And the thing is, is that all the characters are kind of in comparison to everything that is enormous in this place. Even the, the blue smurfs are gargantuous in comparison to the humans. Yeah. So the scale of everything is on a level that is enormous and that kind of puts you in a place where you're almost dizzy. Remember when they're kind of jumping and climbing those floating stones with the water rushing off of them before they grab the dragons and go flying and dogfighting and shit? A little bit. You know, that was kind of like one of the rites of passage to go and claim one of your own little flying dragons, flying lizards, and make them your friend. I, just just all of that shit floating in the air and defying gravity. It's just, again, it, you were constantly put into this position where everything seemed huge or far away. Everything felt epic. So that last battle to me just had me gripping the armchairs of my seat. And I know a lot of people also kind of did not get the movie, didn't enjoy the movie, dissed the movie, whatever. I still think today that is one of the best uses of 3D as part of a storyline, not necessarily as a, oh, well, we just had to do it in 3D because, or or as like, you know, a, a gimmick where they're like throwing the ball at you in the theater, you know, at the screen to kind of make it look like the ball's coming at your face. I didn't feel like it was a gimmick. There were a few scenes that were clearly like that, but not in the same way that most other 3D films are. But can you believe that movie was 10 years ago? Nearly 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah, and that they're creating the sequel now. Yep. And the theme park is done, if not on the way to being done, which is in itself, I, I, you know, I want to go check out the theme park. And, and I'm sure that the movie will inspire people to go and check out, because they're, they're making the theme park in parallel with the movie coming out. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. But to me, that was epic. Yeah. That was super epic. If I need an example of epic, that is a classic example of epic. Okay. So now let's try to run through some other examples so we can get back to the, the book that we are here to discuss. Other mm -hmm. examples of epic battles. What are some that come to mind, even if they're not necessarily the same scale as Ready Player One and Battle of Helm's Deep, for instance? Uh, I've mentioned a few. Uh, and, of course, we've got a list here that I absolutely agree with a number of them on. What do you think that we've not yet talked about that is epic in your mind? Huh, well, I would say that from the movie 300, there's certainly a few scenes in there that I think rank up there. And the right. one that I pulled from the list, or one of the few lists that I was looking at, the Battle of Thermopylae. Okay. And it's been a little while, but I do own the Blu-ray, so I might have to rewatch it and see. But I do remember just being similarly awestruck by the visuals in that movie, this, the way it was with Avatar. Mm -hmm. So I think that was pretty good. I would say that Omaha Beach from Saving Private Ryan was, okay. was epic in a different way because not so much, I mean, like, I mean, there is a sense of scale to it, but I think just because the perspective you have on it, which is you're there with them, gave it a mm -hmm. very trying to think of the right word for this, but you were, you were immersed, fully immersed into the yeah, action. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it because you're so immersed in it. And because these are people that these are young guys that have been drafted and many of them are going towards certain death. And you have that bit of connection because, you know, so mm -hmm. many of us either know or related to somebody that served in World War II. Right. So like, because it's still so recent 
in American history that there's still kind of that connection to it. Yeah. And we're, and we're so divorced from the concept of actually participating in war, most of us, because, well, we just are. Yeah. And to see just how brutal it is, and that it's based on something real. It's not a fictitious, you know, orcs or what do you, what do you call the, the people in Avatar? I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that question. I don't remember. Navi. Navi, okay. You know, it's it's not a made-up race of people called the Navi. It's not Terminators. It's not aliens. It's actual people. Mm-hmm. And I think that gives it a different sense. I get you. A different level of um, epicness. I, I think part of epic is, is scope and scale. Uh, and there are a lot of elements, but I think one of them is scope and scale. And while I believe that a scene like that is absolutely epic in the understood scale, and importance. I think when you're deep in the battle, uh, when you're entrenched in it at a low level, it's difficult to get the feel of the scale by not pulling out and seeing the mass. And I, I've only seen bits of Saving Private Ryan, particularly that scene. But the bits that I saw, I did not perceive as being epic in the sense of scale and, and pulling out in size. So I guess the difference there is if I was zoomed in on the anthill going crazy, you can only get so many ants in that in that frame. But to really feel the epicness, you have to not only attach to the few characters that are amidst the chaos, you've got to pull back and look at the sheer scale of everyone that is involved. And, and then you realize that the true size and, and potential hopelessness of the battle. So let me ask you, in watching Saving Private Ryan, was there every moment where we pulled out of the beach and you saw the multitudes of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of soldiers and ships trying to come onto land and the line of fire that was, you know, being lit up through them and around them. I mean, that sense of scale, I don't think they ever do that kind of pullback, but they do kind of do this panning around showing like all the, the dead soldiers in the beach well, that's fine, but that's from where you are in that moment, right? Yeah. Like, this is what you would have seen if you were on the beach. Sure. I, I think this, this borderline's epic for me. I'm not sure I would call this epic. I would call this a shitstorm, without a doubt. But because it didn't actually pull back to give you the full feel of the confrontation, it doesn't give you the opportunity to feel the epicness. It just basically puts you in the shitstorm of a handful of characters and says, knock yourself out. It's one of the reasons why I wouldn't say live, die, repeat. I would not call any one scene in that movie epic. You know, there was a struggle of a handful of characters that were kind of fighting their way through to make a difference and eventually get to sort of the, the mother alien. And there were scenes where people were dying left and right. But I wouldn't call any of those epic because you never got a pullout of the full scale of what was going on. So you never had a feel for how large the battle really was. That was a good movie. Edge of Tomorrow. I love that yeah. movie. And I'm, I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan. I'm really, you know, just... For various reasons. Not a huge fan, but that was a great movie. His involvement in movies is just kind of like, all right, well, I'm going to ignore that it's him because it could be anybody and just kind of try to enjoy the movie. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on from these epic battles, there's a few that I found on some of these lists that I wrote down in my show notes, but I don't necessarily agree with in their epicness. So let's see what you think. I saw two Star Wars examples on the list. One was yeah, okay. so the attack on the Death Star, the first one, and then the Battle of Endor. 
here's the thing with Star Wars. If a Star Wars movie doesn't have an epic space battle, probably not Star Wars. Move along. Not telling you to move along. Yeah. I'm just saying don't watch the fucking movie because that's that's Star Wars. Star Wars sure. always has an epic battle. But is that's, it that is just that is just epic in the way that we're talking about here. Yeah. Okay. Scale, you know, both on uh, at an individual level and then there's always the pullback. So can you think of a Star Wars movie where there wasn't hundreds of of X-wings and tie fighters and ships kind of going at it and then it zeroes in on one person doing it and then it pulls back out to the epicness and then zeroes back in on another person doing it. You know, there's always seems to be in Star Wars an epic battle where all of the characters are in conflict together. And it's constantly pulling back out to see the scope and scale and then zeroing back into the individual effort. That is a, a an epic trope for Star Wars. If that doesn't have it in Star Wars, I, I'm not sure it's a Star Wars movie. I guess I kind of get more distracted by the fact that they do focus so much on the individuals t- and their role in the battle that it's mm-hmm. it makes it difficult to kind of see the the broad brush. Well, and that's why you have like this pullout where, you know, it goes back, uh, you know, like, for example, if there's a there's a, a ship battle, for example, you'll always be following a ship that is one of the characters, not always, but you'll be following a ship that's one of the characters. And that's to show you the scale of what they're involved in. And then it zooms into them talking in their cockpit, pulls back out to other ships getting blown up, you know, or flying around the Death Star or whatever, and then zeroes back in on another person. But you have this constant pull out, zoom in, pull out, zoom in. Just to give you constantly keep you in focus to the fact that there's a larger thing happening and here is their role within the larger thing. And that just seems to be sort of like part of the ingredients to to a movie, you know, to for a, part of the ingredients to a Star Wars movie, rather. Like you should expect it. OK, that's fair. So do you have any other? I think that's all I have for these large scale battles that we haven't already kind of alluded to. Do you have any more that are being forgotten? You know, we've hit the ones that are most memorable, and I think the ones that are most memorable are the ones that are able to both scale out and zoom in on different characters within the same battle well. And that, to me, is what creates an epic battle. Well, then why don't we move on? All right. Right on. So what are in the pockets of our heroes when it comes time to fucking throw down? So H shouts, it's on like Red Dawn. Mm -hmm. They all start unleashing a torrent of weaponry against Sorrento, because why not, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, he's the biggest target. He's the biggest target. They soon realize how pseudo-invincible he is. So I guess they're, if everybody's laying, in, laying into Sorrento, I mean, who's taking care of all the other Sixers, you know? Well, everyone else, right? I mean, the, the battle is on. I don't think everyone was fighting at Sorrento. I'm sure everyone wanted to at least get a shot in on Sorrento to say that they contributed to his demise, or potential demise, rather. But at the same time, there are a lot of other threats. Yeah. And we go into the fact that that a number of the IOI employees that, that had their robots going, they, they didn't even have an opportunity yeah. to really contribute to the battle. If we're talking about the number of avatars that we expect were going to be there, there were enough people to take on all the other people. Right. So they all start unleashing their weaponry onto Sorrento. Parswell fires Lebanon's arc turn weapon, which is the gold boomerang that launches from his forehead. Right. Artemis's beam weapon appears to be the only weapon that has any amount of damage capabilities against Sorrento. Well, and what was, what was Artemis's, what's Artemis's robot? Uh, Minerva X. So she's 
what we determined was likely the smallest robot, right? I think she was the smallest robot. She's really itty bitty. Yeah. Even if we say that she is larger just for the sake of convenience for the character to be in piloting it, so it would have to be like a larger version, if you will. It's still small. It's it's itty bitty. It makes you wonder why Raideen's god weapons had no effect. They were weapon they were god this, god that. How come that how come Raideen is not kicking some ass? Well, all right, so when we talk about video games, we talk about weapon balancing. If you're in something large, it's going to move slow. If you're in something small, you're faster, but you're also potentially weaker. And in a situation where you've got a really small robot and you're trying to say all of these are equal, what are you going to do? You're probably going to put a more powerful weapon in the thing that's smaller. So in order to allow yourself to keep truer to the size, but keep the balance somewhat even. So you think because Radiant's a little bit bigger, his god weapons are kind of more like demigod weapons? Uh, yeah, a little demigod, maybe, I don't know, maybe prophet, prophet power weapons. Maybe more like uh, priest or rabbi weapons. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're lesser, potentially or weaker or, or maybe not, not as effective. But keeping in mind, all of the robots being brought to bear against each other are from the same game that they all won. So, you know, if I was Jim Halliday and I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to provide a list of robots that people can pick from. I don't want anyone to be the most powerful. I want them all to kind of have a balance, be it between speed or weapon power or size or armor. They all have advantages and disadvantages. And when, when I first read this, I didn't really think about it. But after having chatted with you about it a little bit, I think Minerva X is, is one of the smallest. She's 18 meters high. Sorrento's Mechagodzilla is nearly 300 meters high. She is an ankle biter in comparison. Part of me is still kind of thinking that there was some balancing of scale and weapon power right. for the Oasis because, I don't know, there just had to be. Yeah, yeah. And amongst her weapons, she doesn't have a lot. She's got a breast fire, a rocket punch, a rust hurricane, and a beam. Yeah. It is interesting that her seemingly being the smallest robot based on the cannon sizes and by cannon, I mean C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N, right, based on their it. sizes from cannon, that she seemed to be the only one that did any damage. Which I think goes to your point that if you're going to take all these different robots from different universes and put them on the same scale, someone's got to give them some sense of, someone's got to grade them. And you know, on a scale of 1 to 100, somebody's got to be 100, somebody's got to be 1. And where do they fall in there? Well, I think the gist is that you don't want somebody looking at that list going, okay, which one's the most powerful? Because when you do that, and then you think, yeah, but powerful in what way? Because they all have to have some degree of balance yes, in order to for all of them to have importance. And, and he does actually delve into that later on in the chapter where he refers to the fact that, well, for one, that Mechagodzilla has to recharge and he's very mm -hmm. slow. Right. And he says that was the disadvantage. Right. He's big, cumbersome, and he has a long recharge rate, a long refire, a long recharge rate. I mean, like going along the same lines as some of these, the robot shows and all, like where all these things come from. Imagine if you had that amazing weapon like Leopardon's, I think it was Leopardon's sword. That was like his mm -hmm. final move thing. Imagine if you're playing a game and you know you have this weapon, but 
you're told you can't use it for 30 minutes. Right. Yeah, and that's that is a that's the thing about a lot of one-on-one battles between like robots and monsters, robots and robots. They don't pull out their most powerful thing first. They do some hand-to-hand because, you know, why not fuck up the city you're fighting inside of, right? Sure. Then then you're like, "Oh, I forgot. I've got that weapon that's going to end this battle now." Yeah. And that's when the most powerful weapon is pulled out. And, you know, the most devastation is done. But I get it for, for television purposes. You don't want to blow your load too soon. No, you definitely don't so, want to blow your load too soon. No, no, no. You're going to disappoint a lot of people. So in the line here, I think that all of these robots were evenly matched. Uh, of course, you know, when we're talking about the robots that form Voltron, they didn't even get to form Voltron. So my thinking there is that maybe their advantage was that a group of five forming Voltron would be very powerful, but they didn't get to do that. They were destroyed pretty much instantly from the beginning of the fight. It's it's almost like until they form Voltron, they are significantly more vulnerable, and yeah, that's the weakness. So I get that. Yeah. So, but but uh, so it's it's very interesting. I think that, very interesting. The Minerva X actually does do some damage. Yeah. We do get a little bit of a description of Mechagodzilla's power. So Sorrento, a.k.a. Mechagodzilla, is trudging along towards the surviving members of the High Five. And his right. eyes begin to glow a bright blue. And he opens his mouth and blue lightning shoots out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And he's hitting the ground and he's making a big gaping smoking furrow in the earth. He, just, he describes it as in the earth, which is interesting. Yeah, it's like this, like a fucking vaporized crevice that just like like causing a an earthquake size crevice of devastation, just a giant scar, a gash, if you will, across the the landscape, and vaporizing everything from avatars to ships in its path, and they just managed to get the hell out of the way. Yeah, yeah, and it again, we talked to the fact very devastating, highly damaging, but. The refresh rate on that weapon is so slow that, that again, there is your, you know, you've got the, and there's a warning. There's a warning that before his shit starts to unleash, his eyes light up. And uh, you're, you're given a matter of moments to respond and get out of the way. What did you think of the line where he says, you know, where they're talking about the four of them getting out of the way of the, the blue lightning? And then he says, though I nearly took a direct hit. Mm-hmm. How how did you inter- I have my own thoughts about that, but I'm just curious what if you had any particular thoughts about that line in particular. Um, you've heard of the term near miss, right? Sure. Yeah. So when uh, two airplanes um fly within proximity of each other and they have the potential to strike each other, but do not, it's called a near miss. Which to me is kind of a thrill because I would think that a near miss is a hit. Like I smashed into this other person. Oh, it was a near miss. I almost missed you. I'm sorry. I hit you. Right. But in fact, it really communicates, I was near you, but I missed you. And in this situation, to say I was almost struck directly is like saying it was a near miss. Thus, the beam came near me, but missed me. Okay. That's how I would interpret it. Well, I'm not saying like, what do you, what, what, what does it mean by direct hit? I was more thinking of, let me, let me roll back a little bit. The three mm. others are able to get out of the way quick enough, but Parcel was either too slow to get out of the way quick enough to avoid nearly being directly hit. Right. Or perhaps he was first in line of the blue lightning, and he had less time to get out of the way. Um, he didn't get hit, though, right? He didn't get hit, but he makes the point of saying all of them managed to get out of the way, but he was the one who was closest to being hit. 
Sure, so, sure. I think it said everyone was able to get a clear dash out. He, on the other hand, just about got hit. Like, he was very close to the beam. Everyone was well clear of it. He was not. The reason why this made me kind of think about it a little bit more was that later in this chapter, you get more of a sense of the fighting skills of the rest of the High Five. And I'm thinking mostly about the maneuver in which they get out of their mechs. Mm. They eject, they fly out, the mech gets smaller, and then they snatch out of the air and then land on the ground, which is a really cool move. Yeah. Parzival eventually gets hit, uh, and he loses his mech. So part of me is wondering, mm-hmm. is, this a, is this an indication of the fact that he is much less skilled as a fighter in the Oasis? Um, because it, it, he either has poor reaction time or he's just not very good at what he's doing. Like, uh, that's kind of where I'm heading on this. Is, is this an indication of him being a less skilled avatar? I no, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know if it, I don't know how you could indicate that necessarily with this, because given the size of his of his vehicle, his his mech, his fighting robot, it's bigger than the other ones, right? So maybe, but it's only half as big as Godzilla. So the bigger the bot, the the harder, the more mass you've got to move around. And if we're going to be in a realistic world here, or semi realistic, uh, it's going to be slower by the nature of what it is. Yeah, so in the same way that Mechagodzilla seems to be nearly invincible, but very slow, if right. Leopardon is the next biggest robot, then he would be slower than the three mini-robots, by comparison. Right. Okay. That's, that's how I would imagine it. I don't see it as a lack of skill. It could be a lack of skill, but I think I would first go to the fact that it's a bigger fucking robot. He's got more shit to get out of the way. Okay, that's a very fair point. I will take that to heart. Awesome. But now we've rolled into the big boss battle, haven't we? Oh, I mean, H says that they've reached the final boss. Sorry, but the guys are going to have to continue the final boss discussion next time. Get your flower power and fireballs ready. See you next time. that there is a a strange fascination that that there is actually a trope about aliens anal probing us what does it say about our culture that we think that aliens are coming down to explore our orifices in such a way well wouldn't you want to do the same thing if we found aliens all right all right all right let me back this up okay what if you went to another country where all of the animals were dramatically different than you were used to experiencing. And your idea of researching those animals is going at them with some anal tools. That's, that is how unusual I find this. You know, where your first thought is, I've got to sodomize that with something. Hey, you know, to each their own. <laughs> Maybe that's just a normal thing for aliens.